This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. Hello, and welcome to our miscellaneous episode, WTF, where we examine some of the more bewildering passages from TuneIn. These are excerpts that didn't neatly fit into any of our previous episodes, but which we thought were significant enough to take a look at. Since there were more than a few, we've compiled them into their own episode. Some contain questionable language, some seem reflective of pet theories or agendas of Lewison's that are not supported and sometimes even contradicted by the source material. Some are just weird. <laughs> just weird. <Yeah. laughs> You'll probably notice this episode is a bit looser than our previous fine-tuning episodes. So listeners, your mileage may, and probably will, vary on each individual item. In isolation, many of these would not be significant or even noticeable, but in aggregate, we think they do speak to our larger premise. And so we ask, WTF, when TuneIn fails? Our first example is the Beatles' interactions with Little Richard and Little Richard's impressions of the Beatles. Now, Little Richard is a very important figure in this book. In fact, he is name-checked a total of 93 times. Obviously, that total reflects a variety of contexts, discussing him as a performer, his singing style him as a celebrity yeah his cultural relevance and the names of his songs um but still 93 times we can all agree is a lot it is <sighs> yes and we know for a fact that he was paul's musical hero little richard's music was a major entry point into rock and roll for paul mccartney he's a very very important figure to rock and roll to the beatles and to paul mccartney now, the Beatles do have some interaction with Little Richard as the Beatles. They first meet him when he's touring England, and then they meet him again in Hamburg when they're on the same bill supporting him in 1962. We'll now share with you everything TuneIn tells us about Little Richard's personal thoughts about the Beatles as a band. Starting on page 1086, TuneIn reads, 
Little Richard watched the Beatles through a gap in the curtain, and the Beatles and Brian were hot foot to know what he thought. Brian so blushed at the idea of asking that he got Billy Kramer's amiable manager Ted Nibbs to make the inquiry, and was able to use the quote, excellent, quite excellent, in publicity. But Alan Smith got the real scoop, scribbling in his notebook Little Richard's unqualified praise. Man, those Beatles are fabulous. If I hadn't seen them, I'd never have dreamed they were white. They have a real authentic Negro sound. Okay. And then on page 1115, Tune In shares a bit more about Little Richard's candid impressions of the Beatles themselves. The Beatles hung out with Little Richard. They sat in on his backstage Bible study classes, that particular Penniman edition of the scriptures, his wild southern states revivalist oratory sprinkled with their Lancashire spice, tears of laughter folded into the mix. Richard would tell his biographer he liked the Beatles but didn't care for the way John farted, wafted the smell around the room, and celebrated when he scored a double. But Billy Preston had no such complaints, saying, Right from the start, I fell in love with the Beatles. I was probably their first American fan and friend. John was great. He was funny, he was so smart and clever. I admired him instantly for his wit and manner. You just knew he was special. Genius, I suppose, stood out even then, and even to me, a very naive kid. He took the time to teach me how to play the harmonica. I learned Love Me Do, and reciprocated by making sure that he, George, Paul, and Ringo ate. They didn't get any meals from the promoter. So that's a lovely quote from Billy Preston. Um, however, if we're talking about little Richard here, and little Richard's impression of the Beatles, it's interesting that we get one line about how little Richard didn't care for John. And then we have to immediately pivot to someone calling John great, funny, smart, clever, a genius. Well, it's not even that he didn't like John. It's he just didn't like the way that John farted. True. That is the one complaint that we are told that little Richard had about John. I assume the impression we're meant to be left with is that John was silly and impish and, and, and rude. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, come on, how absurd for little Richard to not be able to see the brilliant genius beneath the mischievous exterior, right? Yeah, I mean, presumably Billy Preston was mature and wise enough to look past the farting and see the true John underneath. That pivot is so abrupt. He tells us the farting is the only thing Richard didn't like, and then on to Billy talking about John's genius. One problem with that is that it trivializes little Richard's tension with John, which went way beyond farting. We'll discuss John's uh, aggressiveness towards Richard in a moment. The other problem is that we don't get any direct quotes from little Richard about meeting the Beatles. And the one time we are told about his reaction to them, it is only about his reaction to John. So uh, when people meet the Beatles, obviously that's the most important thing. Well, John was probably the only one who made an impression on little Richard. That's what I take away from it. 
John is the only one who made an impression and of he course. remembered a silly anecdote and that's all there is to be said. However, there's actually more on the Beatles beyond just the farting incident in that biography, The Life and Times of Little Richard by Charles White, which is the book Tunin mentioned and cites in the footnotes. Little Richard also tells a cute story about how much Paul loved him and would come sit and fanboy at him and how Paul <laughs> asked Richard for some singing pointers. He said, Paul wanted to learn my little holler. So we sat at the piano going, ooh, ooh, ooh till he got it. <laughs> little Richard called Paul sweet and said he actually gave Richard one of his own shirts. This is a quote. <laughs> I threw my shirt in the audience and Paul went and got one of his best shirts, a flash shirt, a beautiful shirt. And he said, take it, Richard. I said, I can't take that. But he insisted, please take it. I'll feel bad if you don't take it. Just think, little Richard's got on my shirt. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and he drew a pretty clear distinction between John and Paul. He said in the book, this is another quote. I developed a specially close relationship with Paul McCartney, but me and John Lennon couldn't make it. John had a nasty personality. Okay, so Little Richard, Paul's idol, and a very important figure in rock and roll and to the Beatles' history, says he had a specially close relationship with Paul, mm -hmm. that they spent time one-on-one -on -one together, um, that Paul that he gave Paul some little singing lessons. Mm -hmm. uh, he called Paul sweet, mm -hmm. uh, and that's not relevant. Nope, none of that's in tune in. And saying that John had a nasty personality goes a fair way beyond Little Richard not enjoying John's farting. Mm -hmm. He actively disliked John as a person. From what he knew of him. I mean, he's he's saying this in print in 1984. Yeah. I mean, at yeah. pretty much the height of John's canonization. And in fact, I was able to find plenty of additional information beyond what's in that biography. Turns out little Richard has a lot of opinions and doesn't mind sharing them. Opinions about the Beatles? About everything. But yes, including the Beatles. <laughs> He had more to say about John. In 1984, Little Richard told Merv Griffin, Paul was so nice, but John liked to mess with me in my dressing room quite a bit. I can't say on television what he did. And then he adds, he wouldn't let me out of my dressing room. He'd hold me in, hold the door, and I'd be screaming loud. So... I would guess that that bothered little Richard more than the farting. I assume. I have to say that I, I find it disrespectful to subtly, but still definitely imply that this was a petty complaint on little Richard's part by saying, but Billy Preston had no such complaints. He understood that John was special and yes. And yet, not fairly represent all of little richard's complaints which to be absolutely fair are clearly go deeper than being annoyed by farting john was aggressive to him first of all it, let's just talk about the farts for a second what 
is wrong with John? Like, what's wrong with him? If you fart in front of your buddies or your brothers, that's normal behavior. You guys laugh and you hit each other and whatever. Mm-hmm. If you're doing that in front of your idol, your showbiz idol in a professional yeah. setting, in a professional setting in your 20s, yeah, that's a problem. Some sort of insecurity or veiled hostility. Yeah. In any case, something's going on there. And if we don't have time to unpack all of that, that's fine. But framing his behavior as cute or at the very least completely harmless, when we have this additional information that John would block Little Richard's door, in my opinion, is inappropriate and unfair to Little Richard, who in his telling didn't think it was funny. Well, and the other thing is that you know, even though Little Richard is is reporting John barricading him in his dressing room above his screamed protests, this isn't all of it. There's something more, as he says, something that he can't say on television. And we, we have an idea of what that might be, because as Chris Salowich writes in his book on page 124, as John Lennon offered to supply the American singer with One Up the Bum, Paul attempted to ignore such heresy and learn as much of Little Richard's technique as he was able. So that might definitely be what Little Richard can't say on television. So so to elide that in favor of Little Richard didn't care for the way John farted, but Billy Preston, recognizer of John's greatness, had no such complaints. Yeah, because he wasn't a victim of John's behavior. I feel like that is important information. I can't imagine any reason to omit it other than it makes John look bad. Mm -hmm. Well, the one up the bum story isn't sourced in Salowich's book. So, you know, it's fine if he doesn't want to use that. But the other stories are readily accessible. Some in the same autobiography Lewis and used. Mm -hmm. And we have little Richard in living color on the Merv Griffith show in 1984. Yeah, we'll share the audio for this. So Merv Griffin is a little uncomfortable. <laughs> the audience is a little uncomfortable with the story also. And they put, they put a laugh track over the audio. Which oh, you interesting. Can, yeah, you can definitely tell it's uh, canned <laughs> laughter. Okay. Paul was so nice, you know. Uh, John used to like to mess with me in my dressing room, you know, quite a bit. He, I can't say on television what he did, you know. Uh, 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 uh. He, he was something else. Hmm. In fact, I never met nobody like him. Really? Uh, uh, I don't think nobody met nobody like him. No. <laughs> but I mean, I don't mean he was bad. Now, listen, I, I'm not saying nothing bad about him. God bless his soul. Uh, uh, but he was all right, but he would mess with me. Hmm. Uh, 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 uh. He, he wouldn't let me out of my dressing room. Oh, he would my. hold me in my. He would hold the door, and I would be screaming. My, and, and loud, loud. I'm sure. And, wow. and sometime I would have screamed like a white lady. Woo! He's yeah. He's <laughs> one of a kind. <laughs> he is absolutely. You know, it's one thing to to hold the door on someone. Ha ha. It's another one to keep it closed when they're screaming loud to be let out. Yes. And you're a, a black foreigner in a white country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 In a beer soaked macho cesspool. 
Mm-hmm. He doesn't know these people. No. It's fucked up. Very. Well, there you go. So there's a little more context of uh, uh, Little Richard's experiences with John. It's too bad he didn't he didn't have anything else to say about the other Beatles. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, Daphne, because uh, once again, I did the research and I found at least four different interviews with Little Richard talking about Paul McCartney. Oh. Mm -hmm. In the Chris Salowitz book, Little Richard is quoted as saying, Paul was the closest to me. Paul is like my blood brother. I believe if I was hungry, Paul would feed me. We're that tight. Paul is a humanitarian. Oh. Uh, that's not in tune in. In 1972, to the late night lineup, Little Richard is asked, what do you think of Paul McCartney's Long Tall Sally? And Little Richard says, I thought it was fantastic. I love Paul. He's beautiful. On Midday with Bill Boggs in 1984, when asked about his first impressions of the Beatles, he said, uh, They sound good. Paul was unbelievable. Uh, uh, to me, I felt that he could make it uh -huh. himself. Paul, okay, so he's singling Paul out. Mm -hmm. Calling him unbelievable. I thought that Paul could make it. Also, again in 1984, asked on KPIX in San Francisco, asked about the Beatles. He said, I felt Paul had the talent, but nobody else had any. <laughs> wow. Okay. Literally. Did you think they were talented? Oh, oh uh, no, I thought they wasn't going nowhere but back home to their mamas yeah. uh, uh, at the time. I didn't think they was going to make it because they offered me 50% of them. Brian Epstein offered me 50%. And I said, no, no way. I ain't going to waste my time. Mick Jagger was opening my show. I, don't, I felt that Paul had to tell him, but I felt nobody else had any. And he, he says, okay, so as it, you know, as it turns out, the other Beatles are talented as well. Yes, so I was, yes. I was wrong. I was wrong. But I, I didn't think that at first. I think that's pretty important that Paul is singled out by his idol. That he made that big of an impression on Little Richard. Well, if it's relevant that John made that big of an impression on Billy Preston, it's relevant that Paul made that big of an impression on Little Richard. When people say nice things about John, it's worth quoting in full. When people say nice things about Paul, we're just going to absolutely completely ignore it. We're not even going to intimate that little Richard had any positive feelings toward Paul. Why? Unless you think that Paul doesn't deserve No, even that. if you think he doesn't deserve it. I don't care if you think he deserves it or not. Well, that's, that's true. What, that's what little Richard thinks. True. Well, Richard is mentioned 93 times and tuned in. Is he not important? What could be the possible explanation to not include what little Richard says about Paul McCartney? None. I can't. I cannot think of any justification for that. Oh, look, I found a fifth quote. Little Richard told KRLA's Laura Gross, I love Paul. He's my favorite. Brown, white, red, blue, or green. He is the Beatles. What about this, though? These quotes from Little Richard are given after the fact. So was the quote about him farting. It's from his book. The book is from 1984. 
These are exactly the same time. The quote from Billy Preston is after the fact also. Half the quotes about John are, are from after his murder. Paul is still alive. Forget that he wasn't brutally murdered in a way that the world grieved as a huge injustice and then said nice things about, like, he's literally still alive. No one has ever eulogized Paul, ever. So that kind of standard does not exist in this book. There is no acknowledgement of things said about John in memoriam versus things said at the time or, you know, in the 70s or whatever. If there's a good quote about John, no matter when it's said, it's used in Tune In. So as far as we can tell, there is no reason to ignore these flattering comments about Paul or to exclude John's homophobic comments and locking of the door. And we think it's a massive oversight on TuneIn's part. Not only because it speaks to personal impressions, little Richard says Paul was always nice and John was not, but because he's giving his professional assessments of their comparative talent. Both elements are extremely relevant and extremely important to the Beatles' story, whether you agree with little Richard's impression or not. Right. Let's quote him. He's important. Does anybody doubt that if Chuck Berry said, I immediately thought John was the superstar and he was going to go places and I wasn't impressed by the others. <laughs> you going to tell me with a straight face that Lewis and wouldn't put that quote in tune in. So to summarize the main problems with tune in's treatment of little Richard meeting the Beatles and their early relationship Little Richard's only reported personal impression is A, about John. B, it's incomplete and trivializes Richard's concerns. C, it's used as a springboard to Billy Preston's lovely and complimentary quote. Also, there's nothing about Richard being immediately impressed by Paul or about their sweet personal interactions or about Little Richard's lifelong affection and glowing respect for Paul McCartney. Not even the singing lessons. I mean, think about that for a second. Little Richard giving Paul McCartney singing instruction, not important enough to mention in the definitive Beatles biography. I mean, even if it was 15 minutes at the piano together. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, how about this? What if Lewis doubts little Richard's sincerity or finds him an unreliable source for some reason? What, an unreliable source of his own opinions? <laughs> okay, well, I mean, first of all, anyone can doubt anyone's sincerity at any time. That's a slippery slope because if that's the standard, then any author can just ignore any opinion he doesn't agree with. Or ignore the opinions of people he doesn't like for some reason. Lewison isn't required to agree with Little Richard. He's just obligated, as far as I'm concerned, to represent his views to the best of his ability. Which means reporting what he said. (laughs) Right. That's a bare minimum. It's not as if Lewison has a vested interest in never letting through quotes that single one beetle above another because he reports quotes that single out John. 
all the time constantly i mean again yeah. even even in this instance yeah he was like oh well little richard doesn't have anything nice to say about john that's okay i'll find somebody who i'll does. find someone who did it yes and i'll pivot immediately As I mentioned in a previous episode, Ivan Vaughn was outraged that the Quarrymen did not immediately jump at the opportunity to add Paul to their lineup. As Colin Hanton writes in his book Prefab, as he often did, especially after introducing us to Paul, Ivan turned up. During an interval, we began chatting about Paul and his appearance at the Fate, and whether or not he would be a good addition to the group. It was at this point that Ivan became quite agitated, cutting in to comment quite sharply, I don't understand you lot. I introduce you to the best guitarist in Liverpool, and you can't make your minds up whether you want him in the group or not? Colin continues, Paul was Ivan's mate, so he was as loyal to him as he was to John and us as a group. Most of the time, Ivan was a very relaxed, likable lad, but on this occasion, he was quite irate adamant, in fact. Frustrated, I think, by our lack of response toward Paul's appearance at the fate. Being with Paul in the church hall, Ivan was the one who had actually witnessed Paul's audition. He'd seen and heard the impression Paul had clearly made on those present. I had certainly never heard Ivan raise his voice before. He clearly felt very strongly about this issue. It startled us, or should I say John, not so much into making a decision, which I believe John had already done, but about doing something about it. That's amazing. Still so confused and disappointed as to why that anecdote did not make it into tune in. I know. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's important to the timeline. It, it, yep. um, it um, develops characters of these people and also it's very charming yeah it tells us a lot about ivan and his relationship to john and to paul mm-hmm. by the way <laughs> you would never know reading tune in that ivan was equally loyal to paul as he was to john yeah. as colin writes right or that ivan started coming to rehearsals more once paul joined aka for Ivan, Paul was more of a draw than John was. Tune in portrays Ivan as slavishly loyal to John, called John Ivan's gang leader, and wrote that Ivan admired John's many talents and paid full respect, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Which is a very suspicious choice from my point of view, since Paul and Ivan remained friends throughout Beetle time and until the end of Ivan's life. Yes. Colin is very clear in his book that Ivan and Paul were good friends by the time Ivan introduced John to Paul. Mm-hmm. Here's another odd note. Tunin is very invested in downplaying the quarrymen's skiffle roots and emphasizing John's rocker cred in particular. From page 17, 
John sang and played guitar, forever the front man. But he was, first, last, always, a rocker, and his group was now charging headlong in that direction. Newspaper ads for the dances they played were already calling them rock in skiffle, though actually it was rock all the way. And then from page 160, the quarrymen played skiffle, but no group with John Lennon in it was going to be stuck picking bales of cotton, lamenting long lost John, pining for the glimpse of a train's flickering headlight, and smuggling pig iron past toll gate keepers. Now he had a guitar, nothing and nobody was going to keep John from singing Elvis, Gene, and Carl. Please don't write Pickin'. What's wrong with these topics for song? Why are they, you know, less than? What's wrong with a song about picking cotton? Yeah, I mean, you know who picked cotton? The great Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. The people that you refer to, I mean, Elvis and Carl Perkins, they were country boys, sir. Mm-hmm. Carl Perkins is about as salt of the earth as you can get. Mm-hmm. So that's a very weird comment. I mean, everybody knows that the roots of rock are in country gospel and blues. So I don't understand the point of that. I don't understand why you would want to change the story from John evolved from skiffle into rock to change that to John was never skiffle. He was always rock. <laughs> Well, if the point that TuneIn wants to make is that John was already rock and roll in spirit before he met Paul McCartney, then I'll happily concede that point if what you want to call rock and roll is just teenage rebellion and generalized angst. I mean, rock and roll is an American art form, largely a Southern American art form. So one could easily make the case that John Lennon who was not from the rural southern United States, is merely cosplaying as a rock and roller. This genre that we're talking about is the fusion of country, gospel, blues, and rhythm and blues by black and white Americans. That has nothing to do with any of the Beatles, which obviously is not to say that the Beatles couldn't, shouldn't, or didn't play rock and roll. It just makes the whole notion of being authentically rock and roll something that the Beatles are not, by definition. But you know what? I'm sure that Lewison would concede that point because he's asserted that only a British person could truly understand the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty confident he agrees that only post-war American Southerners could truly understand rock and roll. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he would agree with that. Mama, he treats your daughter me. Our next section is about homophobic language or implications in TuneIn. Bear in mind, the book was published in 2012, and it's possible an editor, or even Lewison himself, would flag and possibly rewrite some of these passages. But we will read them as they are. 
Also, bear in mind, TuneIn does not operate on the assumption that John Lennon is a queer person. Queer meaning, you know, somewhere under the LGBTQ plus umbrella. Despite evidence suggesting the contrary, supplied by both John and Yoko. Which there is no possible way Lewison is unaware of. Not at all. We're not really issuing a judgment on that because it is sort of a complicated issue. We're just pointing it out. For the record, TuneIn treats all the Beatles as straight men who view LGBT plus persons as other, whether or not that was actually the case. And we say this because as we read these descriptions, it seems clear to us that the reader is assumed to be straight also. Yeah. Queer people are definitely othered in these passages, at least to our ears, but listeners can judge for themselves. First is a footnote, actually. It's on page 103. Um, and it's very strange. It's just a footnote about a man named A.J. Smith, who taught at the Liverpool Institute and ha who happened to be John's Uncle George's brother. This is the entire footnote. He mentions the man and then in a footnote says, A.J. Smith, although respected, was the kind of teacher kids liked to mimic. He spoke with pronounced sibilance and was somewhat effeminate. His any nickname was Sissy. End of footnote. What? Why? I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. We don't need to know everybody's degrading nickname, first of all. Well, yeah. And secondly, if you really needed to tell us, you could have just said his nickname was Sissy. You didn't have to add that he spoke with pronounced sibilance. Yeah. yeah. Like, thank you. It's we get it. Unnecessary. Yeah. Unfortunately, the two other times he's mentioned, Lewison chooses to refer to him by his degrading nickname, Sissy. In quotes. Um, not sure why, but on page 182, tune in reads Arthur Kelly remembers George being stopped in the corridor by John Lennon's uncle's brother, Sissy Smith, for wearing suede slip on shoes. And in another footnote found on page 1251, tune in reads The handwriting of which Paul was so proud was taught him at the Institute by Sissy Smith brother of john's late uncle george i struggle to even begin to believe that alfred smith thought of himself by his nickname mm. or would have ever introduced himself thus mm. so i have no clue why tune in is so would, disrespectful would, would refer to him that way not even give his first name like not even do Alfred in parentheses, Sissy Smith. If you must, if you must remind us that the boys made fun of him. May I? The handwriting of which Paul was so proud. Oh, yeah, that, that comes up a few times. Paul is proud of his handwriting. Wow, what a dandy. What a fancy boy. Yeah. Brian also has neat handwriting. He's the other person who mm. gets described with having. You know what that means. <laughs> Can you imagine an artist with good handwriting? 
everybody knows it's manly to just chicken scratch. Is it I gay love... to read another man's handwriting? <laughs> to appreciate the curves and contours of another man's vowels. The the next several excerpts have to do with Brian Epstein. On page 376. All public schools had some activity. Boys feeling the stirrings of sexual interest while ganged together in dormitories. No girls in sight. But these conditions surely didn't fashion Brian's inclination. His inclination seems to have been latent at the root of so much unhappiness and unease. It was just Brian's bad timing that what he'd need slash loathe slash crave in his life was illegal and taboo. When chasing pleasure, which Brian often would, prison was just one of the constant dangers. Ahead lay years of fear and veiled behavior, risking the courts, blackmailers, and roaming queer bashers. Okay. So, so there's a lot here. Oh my god. First of all, it's hard to follow and it just reads kind of like gibberish. I'm not even sure what Lewison is saying half the time. These conditions okay, the, these conditions meaning boys school. Yeah, boys boys only dormitories. You know, uh, yes. Surely didn't fashion brian's inclination okay so it didn't make him gay okay it seems to have been latent i'm assuming he's referring to his sexual orientation at the root of so much unhappiness and ease and i don't even know what that means either what is at the root of so much unhappiness and ease his latency or his homosexuality his homosexuality which can i just say that's not the root of Brian's unhappiness and unease, homophobia is the root of that unhappiness and unease. No kidding. So let's get that clear. And then to call it, it was just his bad timing. Like, I know that's a little tongue-in-cheek, but let's not. His bad timing, not even his bad luck. I know Lewison is not seriously blaming Brian for the homophobia that was directed at him uh but it's it's just really tasteless and insensitive to make facetious jokes to that effect it was just her poor taste in men that landed her with a father who beat her yeah this one didn't land it just just didn't land (laughs) yeah not funny i think lewison is trying to be sympathetic I agree. I think he's very much, not that there's anything wrong with that. It does sound like it was written in like the 60s or something. Like it's, I don't understand why it's so antiquated sounding. When chasing pleasures. Mm-hmm. And he treats it like it's a chocolate craving or something that's out of control. You know? Exactly. Yes. Sort of an addiction. A, an addiction. Yes. Yes. Okay. On page 383. Little by little now. Brian explored Liverpool's other nightlife, a necessarily complex, secretive netherworld of diversion and danger. Every city had its hangouts for queers or poofs. This or that public toilet, specific areas of certain parks, or, for the bold, 
particular pubs or bars on a given night of the week. Brian peeled back the lid and joined in. What's known is that he liked younger men, but the majority of his encounters were with men of violence, often working-class laboring types who might physically as well as sexually assault him, and sometimes only the first. The slang was rough trade, and Brian was a slave to it. He had an emotional compulsion to take risks, especially if he was drinking. Scotch was his favorite. He was often beaten, several times blackmailed, and would have very few meaningful relationships in his life. Mostly torrid flings and one-night stands. He was a man of many companions, destined always to be alone. He despised the way he was, sometimes really hating himself for it, and yet, for all the guilt and pain these moments brought, his appetite was rarely less than voracious. He was usually, to use his own words from a private letter, hot for sex. This wasn't all Brian did. What? Brian attended every concert by the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra and was a regular at every theater and took up amateur dramatics. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad he had <laughs> something else to do this time. <laughs> Torrid flings. Destined always to be alone. What is that supposed to mean? Nobody's destined to be alone. Yeah. Well, and he died at 32. That's real young. It's very common for people not to have found a long-term partner by then. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, a lot of people don't settle down until their 30s or 40s. All right, so what do we make of Lewis in writing that Brian's partners might physically as well as sexually assault him and sometimes only the first? He... Is he... No. he Is he implying that Brian would have preferred to be sexually assaulted like that it came as a disappointment if he was only physically assaulted no i cannot believe that that is his intention i do agree that that is very poorly worded i think he's just saying that sometimes there wasn't even a sexual component sometimes it was he just get beaten and robbed but I think the problem is the word only it, and sometimes only the first. I think if he had said like, and thankfully sometimes it was only the first that could have cleared it up. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. 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 I wish he had just written might physically and or sexually assault him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That would have just been the cleaner and easier way to do it. So I, you know. Okay. Well, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna assume he didn't have bad intentions with that, but you do have to be careful when you you know you got to choose your words carefully when you're talking about stuff like this. Yeah, exactly. And I don't like he was a slave to it. I mean, that's awful. That's just terrible. Like he's no more voracious or hot for sex than your average twenty year old man. It doesn't. The fact that Brian was gay I, doesn't I, make his sex drive any different or more notable or more scandalous like he's just your typical horny young person were the beatles slaves to it yeah no i agree they were like fucking dogs in hamburg <laughs> yes oh, oh my god man. 
All right, so on to other people's perceptions of Brian. Not everyone realized that Brian's Rada London voice, refined air, immaculate appearance, manicured nails, and use of male fragrance and use of male fragrance at a time when barely no man in Liverpool touched it, indicated a quote-unquote queer. People simply weren't used to thinking that way. But to those who knew, he was patently identifiable. So does everyone who went to RADA gay? What? What? Like, I, I guess, <laughs> I guess he's saying like, add that to the checklist. RADA, refined air. Okay, check. <laughs> Appearance immaculate. Check. And I, I love the use of male fragrance. Like <laughs> you could have just said cologne, bro. Okay. Page seven forty two. The Beatles knew Brian was queer. Brian would labor for months under the delusion they didn't, but they did. There'd be many people in the months and years to come who'd not realize it because their minds didn't think that way. But the Beatles were hip to it, and it didn't particularly bother them. I'm not sure why we have to put it as Brian would labor under the delusion that they didn't know. Like, he just he just didn't know. Yeah. He thought they didn't know. But it's kind of written like he didn't realize how queer he came across. Like, mm. it was so obvious, which is kind of unnecessary again. Okay. But I mean, he at least he does say it didn't, didn't bother the Beatles. Yeah. But again, this is... I don't know. Whatever. This is... A, it's another thing that's not explored. Like, okay, they knew without being told, and it didn't bother them. Are we allowed to have a conversation about what that might mean? Mm. Are we just so we're just supposed to assume that that doesn't mean anything? Except that they were hip. Well, once again, you know, Lewison is a stray man writing for a straight audience. So he is. He is. This next paragraph demonstrates that perfectly. Yes. Yes, it does. Royston Ellis had told the Beatles one in four blokes was queer. And they already counted themselves fortunate to have bucked that statistic. Um, had they? I have many questions, okay? Did they actually buck the statistic? Number one. Mm -hmm. And two, what makes you say that they counted themselves fortunate to have bucked it? How do you know that? What proof do you have of that? I mean, I think we can say that that all was relieved since we have that quote from him one in four oh shit it's not me is it no no i think we can assume that paul doesn't want it to be him yeah but i don't think we can conclude that he there was no relief there fortunate yeah. to have bucked that statistic paul didn't say oh well he told us that one in four was gay and we looked around and said woof glad we dodged that bullet right. we lucked out i guess that's not what paul said at all that's true he said, oh, we all had a bit of soul searching after that. <laughs> <laughs> Which he could be saying the royal we, as in right. I had a bit of soul searching after that. Or maybe they honestly all did have soul searching after that. True. But either way, he doesn't conclude with, fortunately, I realized for sure. Exactly. It's so stupid, especially after like John 
allegedly had a threesome with the guy <laughs> that's right if the guy's like you know one in four of you is gay and john's like i would like to have a threesome are you into that like what how's your takeaway like thank god they all decided they were straight it's uh, whatever like i honestly i'm not <laughs> i'm not looking to tune in to give me insights about human sexuality uh, i'm really not like that <laughs> book is gonna have to come in the future no offense no. to mr lewison no. but how do you know that john it's... wasn't thrilled to hear that statistic yeah if you assume or comforted exactly or or relieved exactly like if you assume that john lennon is a queer person then he, that's going to be great news to him yes yes i would say that's the typical reaction for queer people when you find out that oh it's actually super common that's a that's a good day they already counted themselves fortunate to have bucked that statistic nope no you can't say that for certain this is a straight person imagining what a straight yeah. person would think. By the way, I am just assuming that Mark Lewison is straight. I don't know that for a fact. So true. If he is not, then I apologize. So the Beatles weren't queer. Lewison continues, Brian manifestly was, though. Male grooming in Britain in 1961, just about, maybe for a few, extended to the use of underarm deodorant. The weekly bath washed away sweat, didn't it? But Brian was well scrubbed, shaved and aftershaved, deodorized and so manicured, he wore transparent varnish to give his nails a clean sheen. Okay, so cleanliness is close to gayness. Thank you for yes. breaking that down. He uh -huh. had physical and vocal affectations. He was persnickety about lots of things. And then there was the way he walked. It wasn't quite a mince, but there was a daintiness that begged imitation and surely got it. I don't even know what to say. First of all, <laughs> the entirety of human presentation and speech and mannerisms are affectations. Yeah, right? Saying that only gay people have affectations is like saying that only people who don't come from where you do have accents. We all are full of affectations. There is no default way for any gender to speak <laughs> or move. Femme gay men are not any more affected than straight or straight passing men. And butch lesbians are not adopting an affectation if they speak in a low voice or don't wear makeup. People are just people. People. <laughs> like, if you really, really had to make this point, you could just say, like, Brian, of course, was, and his good hygiene and the spring in his step, which were both sometimes associated with gayness, gave it away, or something stupid like that. We don't need to know where on the sliding scale between manful normal walk and mince <laughs> brian fell right these are and the then... details that he finds important the the tedious details of course are <laughs> you know like how paul handled his mother's death and then there's the there was a daintiness that begged imitation 
and surely got it. What's the point of that? It wasn't quite a mince. Thank God. But to be to be perfectly honest, it's it's not surprising for a straight man of Lewison's generation to write like this. Probably not. There's worse. There's worse out there for sure. Well, of course. Of course. We would just like to encourage Mr. Lewison and his editors to do it yeah. differently. Okay. How about just one more? Uh, and then I think the point's been sufficiently made. Okay. Let's talk about little Richard. Oh, sure. Let's bring him back. <laughs> All right. So on page 1087 about little Richard's stage routine. It came as a tremendous shock to the Liverpool musicians and a crushing disappointment for some that their great rock idol was not as most men. So much was he queening around backstage, making lewd, lascivious remarks about boys and scribbling in his giant Bible, which he let no one see. He was obviously italics one of them so i understand that with the one of them he is he's speaking mm -hmm. the thoughts of the imagined thoughts of the straight people yeah yeah a crushing disappointment okay. as well as not as most men I, I understand the effect that he's going for i just think when you're talking about marginalized people maybe it's not fun to like go back to the old language yeah without quotation marks or you know you don't really have to you know you don't have to use it at all you yeah. mean unless you're quoting somebody yeah yes unless it's a direct quote unless it's a necessary direct quote yeah you don't have to write in the same language if it's offensive just let it die yeah this is what I mean by like writing for a straight audience. You're assuming exactly. that no one's going to be hurt by these words. Yeah. And like, you know, words hurt. Words hurt. And, and it does matter who it's coming from. That's right. You know, I'm, I would not be surprised if little Richard would happily refer to himself as queening around. Sure. It'd be exact That's exactly. different. Yes. Very different. It matters where the call is coming from. And you're a writer. So you have the power to think about those things and, and yes. choose your words carefully. Is the pen mightier than the sword? Like if it is, then, then you know that words can be hurtful. So let's not perpetuate that if we don't need to. Yeah. And I'm not sure why we also need that parenthetical that it was a crushing disappointment. A tremendous shock and a aside and a crushing disappointment well how about i mean you could say that like as so-called macho as as these kids were apparently they couldn't handle the fact that they couldn't handle. was different or like yeah. such were their fantasies of this rock star that when he turned out to be a real person and not what they had created in their yeah. minds yes they took it personally like why don't you put it back on them yeah also would it hurt to voice some admiration for little richard yeah, right? not hiding that about himself seriously you want to talk that about make him brave yeah you, you want to talk, talk about 
true rock and roll not a single word about how incredible what an incredible pioneer he was as a queer artist and as a a rock artist as a a queer rock and roller yes he's a you know he's a really important person yes a queer black rock and And that he came overseas to germany is pretty amazing good for him man honestly i hope he blew all their little minds i hope so liverpool musicians and you know what I know? I know there are a lot of queer people who saw him and it meant a lot to them. God. Well, and also like it came as a tremendous shock to the Liverpool musicians. Yeah. None of whom were gay, I'm sure. Well, except that's what I'm saying. Like how do you, yeah. what, on what basis do you know for a fact that none of them were queer right they were or all none of them yeah or that none of them had the ability to maybe have picked that up or maybe some of them thought it was neat yeah some of, yeah, maybe, some of them <laughs> might have just been like oh that's different exactly i mean oh, maybe exotics exactly. <laughs> exactly and then also it's very weird that lewison says it came as a tremendous shock to the Liverpool musicians and a crushing disappointment for some, but he, you know, obviously he omits the whole one up the bum anecdote. I want to know what the basis for that statement is. It came as a, exactly. came, a crushing disappointment for some, like, what are you, oh. what are you getting at? Why? And, and also, You're, well, he's just assuming. Why are you just hinting that if you know something, say something. Mm. Okay. Well, it's a little unclear on who exactly the Liverpool musicians are, like who that refers to. Does that mean like the great big bunch of rockers (laughs) who is there? Or is he talking about just the Beatles? Because on the night TuneIn is reporting that performance at New Brighton Tower, there were 11 bands playing in succession. And Lewis and writes that backstage, 50 rock lads mingled. To me, it sounds more like he's talking about that great big bunch of Liverpool musicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I assumed he meant the whole of them, like all the 50 rock lads. Right. But it's not totally clear. It's possible he's just talking about the Beatles and calling them the Liverpool musicians. <laughs> I can't decide which would be weirder. Lewison deciding that all 50 of these Liverpool musicians <laughs> were tremendously shocked because all of them were straight of course well yeah or if it would be weirder for him to suggest that some of the beatles were crushed by disappointment with no quotes to support that like which ones were crushed then yeah it makes less sense to me that he's talking about the beatles i agree uh be, you know because he's already told us that the beatles are fine the beatles are fine with it doesn't bother them about brian and so if they're cool with gay people why would they be upset that little richard is queer yeah so what are you talking about are you just assuming that it was disappointing to them and why would the beatles be tremendously shocked right yeah if that's about the beatles uh, these guys played the reaper bond bro (laughs) tremendous shock i i don't think right All that said, of course, we realize that homophobia was the norm for the time. Yeah. 
But what we're saying is, what is the point of writing a crushing disappointment with no source or quote to go with it? Really, what's the point of that? Honestly, like, I'll cut you some slack because it was 10 years yeah. ago and things have changed a lot in 10 years. So, And you're old. Yeah. And so I don't even necessarily take that as whatever. I think he can learn. Exactly. I, think it's, I think it's possible he's changed his views since 2012. So yeah. hopefully we don't see anything like that moving forward. Let's talk about Mimi's love for John Girls. Oh, get it up for John Girls. Woo! Wee-hee! All right, on page 867. Fine Tuning reports that in 1977, Mimi wrote, There is a big difference in intelligence and lively outlook in the girls who <laughs> like John and those who go for the other Beatles. This has long been clear to me from the very beginning. <laughs> Spoken like Thank a true. Yeah. <laughs> Proud of Thank you. Thank you, Mimi. <laughs> Anyone who chooses my nephew clearly has the greatest taste and the best judgment. Yes. Yes. Cute. Under understandable for Mimi, John's aunt, and yes. blood relative. Absolutely in character for her to say that. Yes. Understandably, completely biased and partisan to say yes. that. For sure. The problem is that Lewison then adds that Mimi was being A, typically snobbish, and B, broadly correct. Wait, he didn't write that in Tune In. He sure did. No, no, no. No, he couldn't have said that. He said that in an interview? No, no, no. This is on page 867. There is no way that Lewison wrote in Tune In that John girls are smarter than Paul Girls, George Girls, or Ringo Girls. That's insane. He, There's no way he wrote that. 876. She was being A, typically snobbish, B, broadly correct. Oh, there's a C, and C thinking of Lindy and Lou. <laughs> so his, his evidence His is, sample group is two fans. Two people. <laughs> One of who was the 15 year old that john wrote letters to <laughs> yeah who was smart enough to take it wasn't gonna <laughs> yeah so mimi was being snobbish was thinking of two fans but also according to lewison was broadly correct that there was a big difference in intelligence maybe by broadly correct he just meant like correct as in broads James, <laughs> <laughs> like lady correct mm, well maybe although if she would definitely be a john fan so that so she yeah. would not be a dumb broad well yeah but maybe he just meant lady brains not not well that's real, true. real brains <clears throat> maybe that's true maybe even john lady brains you know don't compare to man brains <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so she so she might be smarter than 
other Beatle fans. But that's not saying much. I think this whole conversation is too smart for us. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, folks, uh, <laughs> I'd like to see Lewis and sources on that. <laughs> well, the, he obviously could not possibly support that. And if he can't support it, I don't know why he's writing it. It's so incredibly ill-advised on every level. He's just setting himself up for ridicule. I can't figure out if his favoritism for John is just so blinding that he was legitimately unable to see how blatantly fanish <laughs> it was to write that. Or if he knows it's totally unscientific and unsupportable, but he just thought, you know what? Screw it. It's my book. I can write whatever I want. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And which is worse? I don't yeah, know. Which would, which would be worse? You don't know, Daphne. Maybe he <laughs> retroactively IQ tested all of the well, that, millions that is, of Beatle fans. You're right. That is definitely a distinct possibility. Maybe he reviewed millions of beetle fans academic yeah. records mm -hmm. and somehow determined whose favorite beetle each of them was mm. and he crunched the numbers he's <laughs> inventing a machine right now <laughs> the beetle maniac brain tester <laughs> you know i think this is way more likely i think what he probably did was his sample group was all of the beetle the female beetle liverpool girl fans who have passed on he exhumed their bodies <laughs> and measured their skull capacity <laughs> grave robbed <laughs> yeah that's more li like that's kind of the easiest explanation i i agree but but seriously let's, let's crunch the numbers for a second okay john is a very popular beetle certainly right but is he more popular than the other three put together? No. I definitely don't think so, right? So if more than 50% of your audience has a favorite Beatle other than John, why in the world would you go out of your way to insult them? <laughs> it just makes no sense. Uh, yeah. If he had written something like it was frequently reported in teen mags and the like that smart girls preferred Lennon or there was a stereotype or whatever like if he if he really really wanted to get into a discussion of the relative intelligence of female Beatles fans for some reason personally I think that's unnecessary and also a questionable impulse um, but that would be the way to do it just report what people said at the time and then leave it at that. But the fact that he feels genuinely qualified to judge the relative intelligence of large swaths <laughs> of the female population is... Yeah, it's, it's something. Wow. Yeah, that's something. <laughs> There's a part in Tune In where it's describing, like, you know, the, the prostitutes and hamburg oh and it says and it it said it's unknown whether the beetles used the whores <laughs> oh my god what 
That's on page 528, if anyone cares. <laughs> Which of them used the whores isn't known for sure, but all kinds of stories have been written as fact, wow. some of which are probably true. Dude. Oh! What is wrong with him? Used? No! <laughs> like they're uh -huh. a fucking can opener or something. Yes! <laughs> Do you mean hired? Yeah, Talking about a I... sex worker, not an appliance. You it's terrible. And now we have Lewison's description of Paul and Dot's breakup. This one is, well, I'm sure it will surprise no one that TuneIn portrays mm. Paul very poorly here. Yeah. Which isn't an issue in itself, to be honest, because... Paul was certainly not a good boyfriend to Dot. No. I'm sure he had his moments, but he was a shameless cheater. Yeah. And while, yes, Dot tolerated it, she definitely wasn't cool with it. Right. And Paul yeah. was just like, too bad, get used to it. Yeah, it was terrible. That's not even mentioning his bullshit list of rules for her behavior and appearance. Like, it's Oh my god. Awful. Pathetic. You don't have to bend the truth in order to establish that Paul was a terrible boyfriend to Dot. Exactly. But this is one instance where he actually... Did okay? Did okay, exactly. So it's good that they broke up. Yeah, but, but anyway, here is what TuneIn writes. From page 974. Paul and Dot could also have married, but instead they broke up. Not for the first time, but decisively the last Sin would write about a flaming row they had when Paul arrived at Garmoyle Road unexpectedly, catching Dot looking less than glamorously ready for him. But Dot's own recollection would be more circumspect, she said. Paul said we'd been going out so long that it was either get married or split up. He said, I don't want to get married, so even though I love you, we'll have to finish. I could see that Paul was growing away from me. I knew what was coming. All these years, he had been having his bits on the side, and it was getting so easy for him. He was young, and he couldn't resist. Alright, so Lewisham tells us that Sin wrote, in A Twist of Lenin, that there was a flaming row between Paul and Dot when he came over and caught Dot, looking <laughs> less than glamorously ready for him. Lewisham doesn't actually write the row was because he caught her, but that's definitely what most readers are going to take away from that. And he writes that Dot's own recollection was more circumspect, suggesting she was being diplomatic and discreet, like she put a good face on it, didn't sell Paul down the river. Um, okay. Well, there's a couple problems. One is that the flaming row, I mean, that's just completely fabricated. Yeah, that is not true. That is not what Cynthia wrote. We will read you what she wrote in the book, Lewis and Referenced. For clarification, Dot and Cynthia were roommates at this time. And they were roommates. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so you she, know what? You'd have been better off. If only. They should have. They, they should have been roommates. Have. <laughs> <laughs> bitched about their trash boyfriends. And, yes. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad I have you now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh soon to be a major motion picture 
the dot and sin <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Sin writes, we were going about our business in our rooms as usual. Dot had just washed her hair and looked like something from outer space with her hair in rollers. And she was dressed in a tatty old sweater and a pair of her mother's bloomers. So <laughs> she just writes like they were just giggling and having girl time and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then Paul shows up unexpectedly and the sin writes, Dot was absolutely horror struck. There was nothing she could do about the way she looked. So poor Dot is very self-conscious. Yeah. Um, She says uh, the two of them rushed into Dot's room and I'm direct quoting here. All went very quiet. I was beginning to wonder if they were still alive when the door to Dot's room was opened and closed very quietly, followed by the sound of footsteps speedily running down the stairs and the front door slamming, fit to shake the foundations of the house. Now, how in the world is that a flaming row? She literally said they were quiet. <laughs> Paul even left the room very, very quietly. Yeah, I mean, I guess the door slammed, the door of the house slammed when Paul left. But that's not a flaming row. That sounds like him wanting to get out of there as fast as he could, because it was, you know, it's never fun to break up with someone. Well, she doesn't say Paul slammed the door. Let me, let me, let me start it again. Okay. I was beginning to wonder if they were still alive when the door to Dot's room was opened and closed very quietly, followed by the sound of footsteps speedily running down the stairs and the front door slamming, fit to shake the foundations of the house. I was wondering what the hell was going on when Dot virtually collapsed into my room in hysterics, crying and moaning like a wounded animal. Only one thing would have done that to Dot, and that was Paul giving her the push. So Cynthia hears nothing. She hears footsteps, the door slams, and the next thing she knows, Dot is rushing into her room in tears. Yeah. So it's very yeah. possible that Dot slammed the door after Paul. Oh, she's like, get the no, fuck out then, you know, like yeah, she's mad. That's true. It but doesn't anyway, matter. It doesn't <laughs> matter that who slammed the door. Like that's that was literally the only noise. Yeah. So it is not a flaming row at all. It is the opposite of that. Yes, there was no row. So Sid then writes, he was too young to settle down. He wanted desperately to be footloose and fancy free. And and I suppose he let Dot down very gently under the circumstances. The trouble was that Dot honestly believed at the time that it was because of the way she looked on that fateful night. Oh, I know. <laughs> so there was no row and it Paul did not break up with her because she was less than glamorously ready for him. Sin would write about a flaming row they had when Paul arrived at Garmile Road unexpectedly, catching Dot looking less than glamorously ready for him. But Dot's own recollection would be more circumspect, meaning more discreet. First of all, <laughs> I am certainly not going out of my way to compliment paul <laughs> on his fucking behavior okay because we all no. know he was a cad the and town bull yeah, cynthia called him the town bull but even yeah. cynthia here is like well i mean you know he did an okay job really and then also just on the content of this paul saying we're at the juncture where we're either gonna get mm -hmm. married or split up and i, I don't want to get married 
and I'm sorry I love you, but I don't want to be together anymore. That is actually extremely mature, fair, reasonable, mm-hmm. and kind. I'm actually kind of shocked because he doesn't <laughs> have a particularly good track record of, of you know, exactly. breaking up with people. But um, no, he. it sounds fine. It sounds like a, a fine breakup. Plenty of rock stars, maybe even some in the same band, uh, did get married and did continue to cheat flagrantly Mm -hmm. on their wives yes how in the world could it be worse to just be honest and end it and end it yeah and he let her keep the ring as was the general practice (laughs) at the time right and he is well he's framing this as if cynthia's account and dots contradict and they don't they match they completely match the only thing that cynthia says that dot doesn't is that you know she believed mistakenly that it was because of how she looked that night. Maybe Lewison has a, his little pet opinion where he thinks that that's actually why Paul broke up with her, even though there's no reason to think that because because he gave a very mature and reasonable explanation for why he came over and why you know why he wanted to break up. Yeah, and he did but, it quietly, and then when they left the room, they closed the door quietly. Even if Lewison has a has his own fantasy version of of what paul's real motivation is he can't frame it as if cynthia agrees with him because exactly very much does not and wrote it in the book that he quotes yep yeah cynthia said i suppose he let dot down very gently under the circumstances i get that dot was uh hurt by it of course i do but of course we, but obviously it was it was for the best that they broke up no i mean doubt. paul is definitely doing the right thing by breaking up with her I, I don't see the point in framing it any other way you know he doesn't need a medal for being you know for basic <laughs> for human <not> decency <laughs> garbage on this one particular night yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> So good for Dot. I hope that she married somebody else and was happy. Yes, who appreciated her and wasn't trash. Needless to say, a great deal of tune-in is spent on the developing musicianship of the Beatles as a band. Tune-in does thoroughly document each Lennon-McCartney original, giving titles, dates authorship credits completion status (laughs) and various other little details as available and for the most part lewison doesn't offer too much commentary about the songs themselves uh in other words he mostly refrains from editorializing or giving his personal opinions on the various early works of lennon and or mccartney and or lennon mccartney but there are a few passages that caught our attention that we'd like to highlight. So from 255, this is a great example. It's a sort of overview of a lot of different songs. And it starts off with, Paul was now in full flow as a songwriter, keeping an ear cocked for any interesting phrases or sayings he could work into a new piece. Not just thinking like a songwriter, but thinking he was thinking like a songwriter conscious of the process seeing himself in a bigger picture 
Okay, that excerpt we already discussed. Here is a list of the songs. Love of the Loved. There's a little bit of commentary about that. I'll Follow the Sun, of which Lewison writes, Paul came up with this rhythmic ballad alone, words and music, on his Zenith guitar. So no commentary on I'll Follow the Sun? Correct. Okay. Uh, next is What Goes On. That's the only one from this list that's written by John. Um, Lewison just says probably at Mendip's strong Buddy Holly influence. Next is A World Without Love. Lewison writes, a song fragment conceived by Paul during a dark late night walk home. He rarely made any bold claims for this one because of John and George's reaction to the opening line when he first demonstrated it. As Paul remembers, I came in and said, listen to this song, fellas. Please lock me away. And everyone laughed. <laughs> and that was it. Paul never did change the opening line. And on the occasions he played it, when he sang, please lock me away, John would interject, yes, okay, and end it there. <laughs> <laughs> Next is I'll Be On My Way, our signature outro song for this series. Yes. <laughs> Lewison writes, a Paul song with which John always happily declared no association. Okay. Written on the zenith with an attractively simple melody, but the kind of lyrics these writers usually spurned. And then he says, in parentheses, when the June light turns to moonlight. Next is Like Dreamers Do. Lewison writes another interesting McCartney song. Then it's You'll Be Mine. Lewison says a 1960 recording of this Paul song was performed with overblown drama but it's not clear if it was intended that way next he writes several guitar instrumentals mostly and perhaps entirely composed by paul and it seems they were created this way that they weren't merely songs lacking a lyric hot a sun cayenne cat's walk looking glass winston's walk And then he concludes by saying, some of these would remain unheard, but along with the already written Love Me Do, I Call Your Name, and the tune of what would become When I'm 64, several went on to become very well known and won an American number one. This is extraordinary, considering that most people's early attempts at songwriting are stuck crudely and often laughably at first base so there's no footnote for which song of that list went on to become an american number one so i was just curious so i i looked it up and i find it questionable that that song that went on to become a number one was a world without love the song which lewison was so careful to let us know john and george mocked and thought was funny and laughed at and john like wouldn't would stop all from singing it whenever <laughs> he could um now there's nothing wrong that john and george had that reaction i can see how they'd be like oh that's so corny paul 
um, you know, that's cute. John sure. saying, yes, okay, ha ha ha. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying anything against John and George here. But if he's going to report that one of those songs became a number one, why do you not circle back and say, ironically, it was the one that John and George always made fun of? Huh. There's no reason not to. Unless you don't necessarily want people to know that that's the one that became a number one. First of all, it's just weird to write that one of those was an American number one. Yeah, exactly. It's clunky and sticks out because it's awkward. That's why I looked it up. Because I was like, well, which one? And secondly, if you've already written the setup, mm -hmm. write the punchline. Right, yeah. Where's the payoff? Well, and if you wanted to, you could you could say, like, this wouldn't be the first time that John would denigrate Paul's songs that actually turned out to be quite successful and popular. If John doesn't like it, of course. He's, part, he's part of the songwriting team. It's fine to represent his opinion mm -hmm. on something with his name on it, for God's sake. But his opinion isn't like the correct one by default. I also don't know what Lewis means when he says that Paul rarely made any bold claims about a world without love. Like what claims that what that it was a good song? A claim that he wrote it? I think he's trying to say Paul didn't really brag about this brag one. Brag about it, this one. In this entire list, you write like twice as much about this one song as you do the other ones for the purposes of saying that the other guys in the band didn't like it. So then when you report that one of them became a number one, the choice to not mention which one it was makes no sense. Yeah. He wanted to tell us that John and George didn't like it, but he didn't want to tell us that it became a number one in spite of their derision. I suspect. Obviously, we don't know. Yeah, he might have just forgotten to go and close the loop on that paragraph. Uh, this next one is also just sort of odd. Um, it's Lewison's preoccupation with Paul's penmanship, which TuneIn mentions seven separate times. It's very weird because it's and it's very weird because Lewison seems to be projecting his own obsession with Paul's handwriting onto Paul. Because <laughs> he makes numerous little references to Paul's pride in his own handwriting. Um, but he doesn't offer a single quote from Paul where he's bragging about it. And from the way he brings it up over and over again, one would assume he could easily access numerous <laughs> excessively braggadocious quotes about <laughs> his handwriting. Because again, he's stressing Paul's outsized pride in oh, it sounds like a mocking tone yeah so we're genuinely confused by this whole issue um one of these references we already mentioned here it is verbatim from page 1251 the handwriting of which paul was so proud was taught him at the institute by sissy smith brother of john's late uncle george and here are the others Page 26. 
In his neat, left-handed script, generally using a fountain pen, Paul wrote the words. They were always words, never lyrics. Page 141, talking about the words. <laughs> this is talking about Paul's song, Suicide. Remember, Lewison did not provide the words to suicide, but he did give us this. Some of the words came while Paul was lying in bed. Like all would-be writers, he kept a pencil and paper at hand and fancied his ability to write coherently in the dark. Page 583 uh, discusses Paul's bright mind, artistic flair, and neat handwriting. <laughs> As to why he was poorly suited for factory work. Yes. <laughs> On page 659, John, George, and Pete wrote their magazine bios in capitals. Paul used the flowing handwriting he knew counted among his attributes. Page 431. Paul prided himself on his handwriting and seems also to have had no qualms about being economical with truth and generous with untruths. This is in reference to writing to promoters. And the next one is as well. This is trying to get bookings for the band. On page 453, the letter screams versatility, but the recipient would have seen they didn't have a drummer, no matter how flowery the writing or how undeniably impressive it was that John and Paul had written 50 tunes. 30 would have been nearer the truth, but still, this was remarkable. That last one, flowery, might the, the words, the words. Wrote, not yeah. the actual handwriting, but um, but we decided to include it just in case. Just in case, uh, so readers, you'll have to decide for yourselves, WTF, because <laughs> we got nothing. Here's the thing is, like, even if Paul was excessively proud of his handwriting, who cares? Why is that such a big deal that we have to roast him about it? Right. But also, if his pride was so over the top, why isn't he quoted? Right. Or or anyone quoted directly about how he would boast about it. Like I just don't understand where this is coming from. It's it's bizarre. Our next WTF topic concerns a subtle issue in Tune In which is its depictions of Quarry Bank High School versus the Liverpool Institute. We're going to share many instances of seemingly minor detail. Each by itself is benign enough to fly under the radar, but when compiled and examined as a whole, all these little details show very clearly that TuneIn depicts Quarry Bank as the better school. Now, that in itself is not particularly notable. I mean, who cares if John went to a better grammar school, right? Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that tune in subtly but consistently implies Quarry Bank is superior without ever actually saying so in those words or providing any data to support that opinion quick note for any non-British listeners who may not know. British school children have the option at age 11 to take a 
comprehensive exam called the 11 plus, which determines whether they go on to an academic sort of college prep type or grammar school, or if they don't pass it, uh, they, they go to a secondary modern or trade school. John, Paul, and George all passed their 11 plus and went to grammar school. Paul and George went to the Liverpool Institute and John went to Quarry Bank High School. From everything we've ever read, the Institute, or INI, as it's often called, was a very prestigious institution. And being accepted there was a real achievement for Paul and George Harrison, according to all the sources we've ever seen. Tune In is the first book we've ever seen that not only fails completely to acknowledge that fact, but seems to give Quarry Bank the edge over the INI. So maybe Lewison knows something we don't? Yeah, maybe. That is possible. Um, so let's start our analysis by looking at how the Liverpool Institute is described in other Beatles biographies. Okay, from Chris Salowich's book, Paul McCartney, The Definitive Biography. In the 50s, the Liverpool Institute was an academic force to be reckoned with, one of a handful of select Northern England grammar schools that offered largely free, in the case of Liverpool Institute, entirely free to all pupils, education of a classical, liberally academic sort that rivaled that provided by the great private schools like Eton, Harrow, and Winchester. In fact, Liverpool Institute regularly was the top British free state school in terms of Oxford and Cambridge scholarships. In 1957, nine Cambridge Open Scholarships in mathematics were won by the school, a figure that has never been equaled by any other British school. Okay, bear in mind, this was published in 1986. Also bear in mind, American listeners, that in Britain, public schools are the equivalent of private schools and vice versa. Until 1944, the Institute, which had opened in 1837, had been a fee-paying school. As a consequence, certain public school attitudes remained, not the least of which was a sense of superiority to less fortunate contemporaries. The school bestowed on its pupils a sense of their own importance. All the same, it drew its thousand pupils from all over the city and from all social classes. And though its headmaster, J.P. Edwards, was something of a martinet, his draconian regime was counterpointed by a lackadaisical laissez-faire ambiance that arose from nowhere else but the very nature of the school itself. It was by no means a neighborhood school like the self-consciously posh Quarry Bank Grammar in Walton. Salowich also writes, around a quarter of those children taking the exam would pass in 1953. However, only four of the 90 boys that sat the 11 plus at Paul's primary school received sufficiently high marks to be awarded places at the city's top boys school, Liverpool Institute. One of those was Paul McCartney. From Philip Norman's 2016 McCartney biography, Paul was one of only four out of the 90 candidates from Joseph Williams School to be awarded places at Liverpool Institute High School for Boys, actually a grammar school. 
the most prestigious in the city. <clears throat> Does Norman cite Salowich in his book? Because that sounds a lot like Salowich's. Ah, uh, no, no, he does not. Hmm. Okay. Spitz writes, although in Paul's class, out of several hundred students, only 90 chose to sit the 11 plus exam, a test to determine whether or not a student was grammar school caliber and eligible to work toward a general certificate of education, and only four, one of whom was Paul McCartney, received a passing grade. We also get from Spitz that the grammar school Paul entered in September 1953 was a shining exemplar of the British education system. Founded as a gentleman's school in 1825, the Liverpool Institute was a state-endowed academic facility whose ethos was geared exclusively to funneling as many of its students as possible into Oxford and Cambridge. Its Prussian curriculum was modeled on a university-type education, with streams, forms, and majors designed to maximize individual scholarship. The masters wore gowns in deference to their first-class pedigrees. An astonishing 20 of the 52 faculty members had Oxbridge degrees. Wow. Yeah. Oxford and Cambridge graduates who a good career move for them was to go teach high school. Jeez. In addition to those Beatles-specific sources, our independent research of Wikipedia reveals that the <laughs> Liverpool Institute was an English grammar school for boys ages 11 to 18 with an excellent academic reputation built up over more than a century. Its list of scholarships and places at Oxford and Cambridge runs to some 300 names. In addition to distinctions gained at the University of Liverpool and many other prominent British universities, the school was a true measure of Liverpool's intellectual capital, and its old boys could and can be found in later life in many fields of professional distinction. So both from Beatles sources and from independent sources, Liverpool Institute is a big deal. When we find seeming discrepancies in Junin, we always want to leave open the possibility, you know, maybe Lewison, with all of his intense research, maybe he did uncover that certain things that are received wisdom in the Beatle world, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're not so. Yeah. Um, this doesn't appear to be the case regarding yeah. the Liverpool Institute. Yeah. I mean, we've offered four sources. You can find more. We, we thought four made the point. Now, here's how TuneIn compares the two schools' academic reputations. Page 97 of TuneIn reads, Opened in 1922, Quarry Bank had a reputation for high achievement, sending boys to Oxford and Cambridge. The teachers were masters and wore gowns, and some wore mortar boards. By contrast, on page 100 about the Innie, the headmaster was a feared individual strict and humorless in his determination that every institute scholar go on to Oxford or Cambridge. A number did, but those who didn't could be scorned as a waste of everyone's time. Hmm. Okay. So nothing about Liverpool Institute having a reputation for high achievement, like the esteemed Quarry Bank? Correct. And 
Quarry Bank also was a very good school. We're not saying it wasn't. But it's odd that Quarry Bank's good reputation is pointed out, but not the Innie's, even though the Innie was reportedly the top or most prestigious Liverpool grammar school. So yeah, not, you know, that on its own, not a big deal. Okay, he doesn't give the Institute any props, but maybe he'll make some mention of Paul scoring really well on the 11 plus or what it meant to him and his family or, or something. Okay, let's look. So this is what we get in tune in about Paul taking the 11 plus. This was a key period in Paul's life. He took the 11 plus in February, 1953 at Liverpool Institute. It was a daunting experience to step up to its great sweeping entrance, then walk through wrought iron gates into a marble pillared hall. But he passed the test and would be an any pupil come September. That's from page 98. Well, all right, that's pretty dry. And it hints that there was doubt that Paul would pass. And it implies that Paul merely had to pass the test in order to get into Liverpool Institute. Interesting. What does he have to say about John and the 11 plus? Okay, on page 95, Lewison writes... Given all this extracurricular input and his natural intelligence, John couldn't help but shine at Dovedale Road. He was academically ready when the time came for the crucial 11 plus and aware of its importance. Says John, they hang it over you from age five. If you don't pass, you're finished in life. Mimi knew John would fly through the 11-plus exam and had already decided which school would educate him for at least the next five years. She considered Liverpool Institute, but John's uncle George's brother, Alf, was an English master there, and Mimi didn't want John creating problems at school that would reverberate at home. She opted instead for Quarry Bank High School for boys. It was closer to home anyway, just a walk across Calderstones Park, and she'd be able to keep an eye on him. Before long, a letter arrived at Mendips, indicating that John had indeed passed and that his place at Quarry Bank was confirmed. Okay, so obviously there's just a lot more there, more volume of info, more than three times as much, in fact. And we get a quote from John about the importance of the test and his feelings mm -hmm. about it. And by saying that John had to wait for a letter confirming his spot, it gives the impression that a person had to especially apply and be accepted at Quarry Bank. Unlike Liverpool Institute, Paul passed the 11 plus and so he'd be an any pupil, as if that's automatic. Now again, to be very clear, yeah, none of this is said outright in TuneIn. Correct. So this is only our interpretation of the text. But this is the impression that those passages give. Even if it's accidental, it's the author's job to make sure that accidents like that don't occur. You can't accidentally imply that Paul just picked Liverpool Institute and got to go there, if that's not the case. Well, at the very, very least, it just betrays again 
a greater interest in the details of John's life versus Paul's. Furthermore, by saying Mimi considered Liverpool Institute but decided against, that gives the impression that John could have attended the inning, you know, to the reader, either because maybe anyone who passed the 11 plus could, or because, well, of course, John would have met whatever requirement there was to get in. And it implies that a trifling concern about a relative working there was enough to decide against the Institute. Yeah, it's framed as if this was an option that Mimi rejected for a better one. Yeah, because John had a relative who worked at the Inn. Yeah, Mimi's deceased husband's brother. (laughs) So you'd think, if anything, that would be a plus. Like a little insurance policy, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Now, there is a footnote attached to that assertion. Um which was great. I was like, oh, interesting. That's an interview with Mimi I've never read. Um, but when you look at it, all, all that footnote gives is a brief description of A.J. Smith, John's Uncle George's brother. Um, I'd really like to know the source for this being the reason Mimi didn't want John to go to the Institute. Yes, me too. But there's no source given, so oh well. Yeah, it's disappointing because I would have really liked to read Mimi's quote about it. I know, right? So even though, to be clear, Tunin never directly compares the two schools or ever says outright that Quarry Bank is the superior institution, the fact that it describes Quarry Bank as an excellent school and does not do the same with the Institute would certainly seem to imply that Quarry Bank is superior. Again, we're pointing this out because Tune In is the first Beatles book, or any source, actually, (laughs) any source at all that we've seen do this. So we definitely think it's notable. You know, even if it's 100% correct, that is a change in how the story has been told. So it would be significant either way. Mm -hmm. Also, it's a neat trick for Tune In to imply that not only did John pass, he flew through it. But, of course, we don't actually know any specifics uh, about John's score. Just that Mimi knew John would fly through it. <laughs> right. Uh, which he certainly might have done. I have no problem believing that. We're just saying that we don't have any evidence of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Paul, we do at least have some numbers. We know he scored in the 95th percentile at his school. Yeah, the 95th percentile, not of his whole grade, but specifically of the kids who were advanced enough to even sit for the 11 plus, which well, not everyone, true. yeah, which not everyone did at that time. So it was already a somewhat select group and Paul did really, really well. That is relevant. Yeah, that's a good point. And yet John is the one who's implied to have done better. Now, this is a good time to say that We do not think school performance is a direct reflection of someone's intelligence or ability or value or anything else about them. School performance is school performance. Mm -hmm. And readers can make their own minds up about what, if anything, this information tells us about Paul and John and George. We're just saying that there's a disparity in how it's presented in Tune In because the other thing about Lewis and writing that Mimi knew John would fly through it is that it's a contrast to what little we're given about Paul's experience. 
In fact, Lewison called it a daunting experience for Paul, which is fair enough to say, of course, but it also subtly implies that there was some doubt that Paul would pass, unlike John. Is there any source given for Mimi knowing John would fly through it? No, there isn't one. Um, But we do have a quote from Mike McCartney that his family knew Paul would pass the test from his 1965 essay, Portrait of Paul. Everybody was quite confident that Paul would pass the 11 plus, for mom and dad thought of him as the brains of the family. And of course, he didn't let us down because he was a natural at exams. Okay, so my question is, if Lewison thought it was relevant that John was expected to do well without giving a source, then why isn't it relevant that Paul was expected to do well when we do have a source? Good question. Also, can I, (laughs) I really, I just want to read what Mike wrote afterward it's not on topic but it's so funny he continued (laughs) he wrote when i passed in my turn it was so unexpected apparently that mom burst out crying (laughs) i think the idea that she had two intelligent sons was too much for her (laughs) (laughs) oh man poor mike okay so Even though any one of these disparities would mean very little on its own, when we add them all up, it starts to seem significant. Mm -hmm. And we have one more contrast to share, which is how does TuneIn characterize and discuss the schools themselves beyond giving the academic edge to Corey Bank? From page 96 about Corey Bank. The school motto was ex hoc metallo virtutem, more or less translating to, from this quarry, virtue is forged. The school's founder, R.F. Bailey, its only head before Taylor, wrote the words to the song of the quarry, the school hymn every boy learned and sang once every term, and also at the annual prize giving at Philharmonic Hall in the city. The sheet music says it must be sung vigoroso, and the opening verse runs. Quarrymen old before our birth, straining each muscle and sinew, toiling together, Mother Earth, conquered the rock that was in you. Yeah, so that's some noble, lofty stuff. Um, It's nice to have that background. Now let's look at a comparable paragraph describing the Liverpool Institute. On page 99 to 100, the Latin motto at Liverpool Institute High School for Boys was non nobis solum sed toti mundo nati, translated to, not for ourselves, but for the whole world were we born. Tunin continues, clearly, this was a school that took itself a mite seriously. Further on, Tunin reads, Paul had to find his way around what Liverpool and Merseyside Illustrated called an overcrowded and ancient building. The school opened in the year of Queen Victoria's accession, 1837, and it was a confusion of dark, dank passageways and staircases. First of all, he makes a deliberate point of ridiculing the Institute's motto, and he had absolutely no reason to do that. Paul wrote an oratorio specifically with that line in it. And number two, it's a great motto. 
not for yourself, but for the whole world where you born. I mean, to me, that evokes public service, which from my point of view is noble enough. Agreed. And Tunin makes no swipes about Quarry Banks, Latin motto. I mean, from this quarry, virtue is forged. What? To be clear, I mean, I think both of these schools are up their own butts. Oh, of course. Yeah, even Salowich is like, yeah, both of these schools were full of themselves. Mm -hmm. He called Quarry Banks self-consciously posh, and Mm -hmm. he minced no words. He said, look, the Liverpool Institute used to be a public school, and they still had a lot of those attitudes. Fine. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Yeah. But in Tune In, only one of these schools takes itself too seriously, which is ironic considering that Lewison just quoted their school song. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I mean, to me, kind of the most insidious thing is that if you're, if you say that Liverpool Institute takes itself a mite seriously, you're hmm. implying that maybe all those rumors about it being so great, like maybe they're, they shouldn't be believed. Maybe that's just Liverpool Institute propaganda. Yeah, it's just, it's inflated self-image. Yeah. They kind of do have the receipts, Lewis, <laughs> and I, I don't know where you're going with this. Yeah. Like, it's a weird fight for him to pick. Yeah. I mean, if he has receipts that Liverpool Institute's reputation is inflated, I'd like to see them. Yeah, I mean, he gives a lot of interviews. I would like to see somebody ask him, like, was Quarry Bank actually a better school than the Liverpool Institute? Because that seems to be the implication. Tunin asserts that Ivan Vaughn, brilliant student and future future classic scholar and Cambridge lecturer, would have gone to Quarry Bank instead of the Institute, if not for his mother's concern over John's bad influence. Page 100 reads... Ivan was at the Institute solely because of John. His mother decided he couldn't go to Quarry Bank as that Lenin was bound to derail his studies. Solely because of John. Okay. So Liverpool Institute, to be clear, was the second choice for the brilliant Ivan Vaughn. Okay. Yeah. Sadly, there's no source given for this information. That's a really big claim, though. I, For me personally, I would not choose my child's education based on a playmate. Certainly not their high school. One more little note, just as a support point. On page 371, Tunin tells us that born in 1904, Harry Epstein was bright and courteous, educated at one of the city's great grammar schools, Liverpool Collegiate. Which is fine, I'm not taking issue with that. I'm just saying that if Lewison feels it relevant to tell us that Harry Epstein attended one of Liverpool's great schools, and John Lennon also attended a really good school, why wouldn't he want to tell us that George and Paul did too? All right, so Phoebe, why do we even care about this? (laughs) Well, Daphne, I think this is one of those things that some people might not care about it. You know, some people might be like, why are you going on about their schools? Weren't they both good schools? Who cares? And that's fine. Uh, You know, this is why it's in WTF. 
Mm. It's just something that we found odd. I think it's definitely noteworthy. Again, for the reason we stated, Tune In is the first and only book to do this. And when combined with what we talked about in episode three, Creative Whirlwind, where Paul's English master, Dusty Durbin, was downplayed compared to John's English master, Philip Burnett, um, you know, it's part of a pattern. It's never outright stated that Liverpool isn't as good as Corey Bank, but it is insinuated several times. And I would just like to hear Lewison speak to that a little bit. If that's his opinion, I would like to hear him say it out loud and explain why he thinks that. Yeah. Again, Lewison is spending more ink on Corey Bank, presumably because it was John's school rather than any one less important school. But if you're writing an authoritative, even-handed biography and you're gonna err on the side of one or the other, then you should you know, go more for Paul on certain things. Paul, of the two of them, was the kid who was indisputably more academically Mm -hmm. engaged and interested. He's spoken a lot more about his time at school. He seriously considered being a teacher. Yes. And Paul, 40 years later, would buy the whole damn derelict building and spend millions of pounds turning it into a performing arts school. So the disparity between John and Paul's respective investment in their schooling is cartoonishly pronounced. Yes. So again, if you're going to err on one side or the other, why would you come down on the side of John again, yet again? Paul had a greater investment in the school and the professors had a much higher investment in Paul than any of John's did. Yeah. We have Paul's (laughs) teachers on the record talking about paul as a pupil none of which is in tune in none of which is in tune in but fortunately we find it interesting so we have compiled it and we will share it with you in our next episode Alrighty. Now there are several passages throughout TuneIn about Paul not taking as many drugs or drinking as much as John and George. And to be clear, he did drink and do drugs, just not as voraciously, to bring that word back, as the other two. (laughs) (laughs) But his relative moderation is sometimes framed as the absence of an experimental spirit, which we find... Mm, a little questionable so we'll share three short examples the first is the Beatles discovering benzedrine which was an amphetamine available without prescription as a decongestant inhalant back in the day apparently World War II soldiers used it to combat fatigue that's your fact for the day (laughs) yeah that's good from page 329 John always recalled the Benzedrine event with enthusiasm, saying, Everybody talked their mouths off for a night and thought, Wow, what's this? George was keen, too, saying, We cracked open a Vixen hailer, ate it, and sat up all night until about nine o'clock the next morning, rapping and burping up the taste. 
Lewison goes on. But Paul was reticent, saying, probably they didn't give me that much. Probably they kept it for themselves, he says, indicating he passed up the opportunity. Not entirely, but more or less. He was by nature more cautious than George, and considerably more so than John, the great experimentalist, who always tried everything with complete abandon. Well, I think it's fair to say that Paul is more cautious, but calling John the great experimentalist for eating an inhaler. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's hard to take that seriously. It really is. On page 431, about Preludin. The five man Beatles contained a core four, and within this, a switched on trio with their own particular brand of peer group pressure. John and George wanted Paul to feel what they were experiencing, to share the new knowledge, to be all in this together. For Pete, coercion to take the pills was light and half-hearted. For Paul, it was heavy and persistent. John needled him and called him a sissy. This one is interesting because it almost feels like we're empathizing with Paul because he says it was heavy and persistent, but that's so minor in compared with like John and George wanted Paul to feel what they were experiencing, to share the new knowledge, to be all in this together. Like you're talking about diet pills. What? Right. Yeah. I mean, he might be empathizing with Paul to some degree, but I definitely feel like he's empathizing with John and George a lot more because he frames their peer pressure as something noble. I mean, perhaps with LSD, you could make a case that they wanted to share a life-altering experience with him to facilitate bonding. But for Preludin, I don't see any support for that. And then Paul gets called a sissy, which kind of undercuts Lewison's point. <laughs> I want you to feel what I'm experiencing to share the new knowledge, you sissy. Why are you destroying the three musketeers, Paul? Exactly. Why don't you want to be close to us, you little bitch? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, even if you do have a noble or, you know, tender goal, such as greater interbandmate intimacy, <laughs> Peer pressure and name-calling pretty much negates that, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Okay. Did John or George ever say anything about how that was what they wanted? No. no. It's out of thin air. But it puts a more sympathetic spin on John and George peer pressuring Paul to take more drugs. <laughs> Parents, don't let your kids read too in. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually noble to peer pressure your friends into drugs. Okay. And then on page 574, regarding John and George trying pot for the first time in 1960, Tunin reads, Pete kept well out of it, and it's unlikely Paul tried it on this occasion, because he never mentioned it. But John and George, the usual two experimenters, were game. Okay. We understand that Lewison did not write Paul was not experimental, but he contrasted John and George, called them the great experimenters in contrast to Paul. So yes, 
by implication, he is saying Paul is non-experimental. And I know that Lewison is just talking about illicit drug use here. So this is an isolated example that we can't necessarily extrapolate into other areas. From my point of view, it's tricky when you start referring to artists this way because who was the more experimental Beatle is a contentious debate amongst the Lennon and McCartney camps. And everybody knows that. And surely Mark Lewison, the world's acknowledged authority on the Beatles, knows that. If he wasn't trying to imply anything about that debate, he could have easily avoided any confusion by writing John and George, the usual drug experimenters, and John Lennon, the great drug experimentalist. So it's a dubious choice for me for that reason. My biggest concern is how Lewis and frames John and George's peer pressure as a positive as them being good friends like they just wanted to be close to paul and be all in this together mm -hmm. the takeaway being that paul by contrast is resistant to experimentation and less invested in the friendship mm -hmm. less invested in the friendship less invested in the band less invested in exploring new horizons less invested in pushing forward hmm. he's dragging them behind and he's out of step with the other beatles yeah that's interesting i wonder if tunin is trying to set up anything in the future with this yeah me too Thank you for listening to WTF. WTF stands for Wasn't That Fun? Oh, it was fun. I liked it. Next time on Fine Tuning, it's that special second to last episode. That one's always good. Yeah, the penultimate unseen Paul. Our goal is to provide all y'all listeners with the sort of well-rounded characterization of young Paul McCartney, which we think Beatle fans deserve. To be clear, this is not going to be a lot of trivia. This is no. all going to be very crucial, relevant information that when we put it together will really help build a three-dimensional portrait of this very complex, very compelling artist who just so happens to be a Beatle. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast series, Fine Tuning. Visit our website at anotherkindofmind.com. You can find and follow us on social media. We also have a discussion group on the old Facebook that listeners can request to join. You can also email us at acompodcast at gmail.com. Hey, Daphne. Yeah, Phoebe? I sent a Christmas gift. I got it from Acom's online merch store. At Tea Public, Acom mm -hmm. has merch. Indeed, we do, and they make fantastic gifts. 